Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Psalm number four tonight, but before we dig into Psalm four, let's start by looking at, uh, wow, I wrote down a passage here in my notes without giving myself the reference. It's okay, I'm going to read it anyway, just so you'll understand, because it's a bit of history. The rest of you can turn to 1 Chronicles 6, which is really where we're going to start digging in. A bit of history here. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, the final of the ten plagues that he brought against Egypt was the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. Then once he delivered Israel, he said that the firstborn of all Israel now belonged to him. And then rather than take the firstborn of each tribe, he determined that there was just one tribe of the 12 that he was just going to take for himself and that they would serve continually before him. The tribe of the Levites grew so large that King David, in his old age, once Solomon took over the throne, David set about being an organized man, being a a man of war, being a A leader being a king, he set about to establish courses so all the different families of the Levites would serve in their courses two weeks a year. 24 courses, two weeks a year makes 48, so that would satisfy the entire year. And in fact, what it says in the mystery passage that I'm about to read to you that I don't have a reference for I don't know why I didn't write it down. When David reached old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel, and he gathered together all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were counted from 30 years old and upward, and their number by head count of men was 38,000. And of these 24,000, were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officers and judges, and 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were dedicated to praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. David divided them into divisions according to the sons of Levi. Those sons were Gershon and Kohath and Merari. So in the division and courses that David set up for the temple there in Jerusalem, he also set aside a number of people specifically to play instruments, musicians. It was an organized worship effort on David's part. He didn't just leave it up to anybody to come and participate in the music at the temple. And he made sure that there always was music 
in the temple by assigning particular Levites to the task of praising God on musical instruments. So 1 Chronicles 6, I'm going to start reading at verse 31. And we'll learn a little bit more about this because that's going to become important in the next couple of psalms that we're going to read. 1 Chronicles 6, verse 31. Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. And they ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served their office according to their order. And these are those who served with their sons. From the sons of the Kohathites, there was Haman, the singer, and then he goes through the genealogy. In First Chronicles, there are a lot of genealogies. The point of the genealogies in this case is to demonstrate that they were, in fact, Levitical. They were sons of Levi. So he goes through tracing them back and back and back. In fact, in verse 38, you'll see that they are the son of Ishar, who are the sons of Kohath, who are the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel. And Haman's brother, Asaph, stood at his right hand, says verse 39. Asaph is the son of Berechiah. The reason it's important here to remember Asaph is that there are 12 psalms that are apparently written by Asaph. He's accredited with them. And you're going to see the name oftentimes of Asaph because he appears to be the leader of the musicians. He appears to be the one in the temple who is conducting the musical accompaniment to these songs. And then there is the genealogy of Haman's brother Asaph, which ends in verse 47, the son of Mali, the son of Mushi, the son of Merari, the son of Levi. So again, the genealogy demonstrates that he's right from Levi. Verse 48 says, And their kinsmen, the Levites, were appointed for all the service of the tabernacle of the house of God. Now go over a couple of chapters to chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16 And I am going to read a significant portion of this particular chapter because this chapter of First Chronicles happens to include the majority of the 105th Psalm. And since we are, after all, looking at and teaching Psalms at the moment, eventually we'll get to the 105th Psalm and talk about the differences between what we read here in First Chronicles and what we read in the actual Psalms. But in the recitation here in First Chronicles, up until verse 22, it's all just like Psalm 105. In the Psalms, 105 is represented as being anonymous. Here it's King David, so it's pretty obvious that King David is responsible for that psalm. And we'll discuss all of that when we get to it years from now. Whenever we're, we're on Psalm 4, working our way to Psalm 105, Jesus might very well come before then, in which case all bets are off and he can teach us. 
But I'm going to start reading in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4. And he, that's David. Well, I guess I should go back and say verse 1 of chapter 16 says, They brought the ark of God and they placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering a burnt offering and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. So we're talking about David here. Verse 4, And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph, the chief, and second to him, Zechariah, then Jael, and then a bunch of other guys with musical instruments, harps, lyres. That sounds very sweet, harps and lyres. Sounds like that'd be nice, quiet music. And Asaph playing loud-sounding cymbals. So that's going to kind of break up the peacefulness of the music. I think if I came in here one day and had a pair of loud-sounding cymbals and started crashing them together up here, there'd be some protest, but... David made sure that in the temple of God, there were all kinds of instruments. You're going to see in Psalm 5 that he instructs that it's particularly for the flutes. So he's very specific about the instrumentation he expects. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. So now you've got trumpets and you've got cymbals on top of the harps and lyres, pretty loud. It also demonstrates, by the way, that God can actually stand musical instruments being used in his worship. I just thought I'd point that out for any Church of Christ folk in the room. Verse 7 says, Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And here's the psalm of thanksgiving that he put forward. I'm just going to read it out. I won't comment on this particular psalm until we get to Psalm 105 someday. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. And let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only few in number, very few, and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them. 
he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, and all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. And then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations, and give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And then all the people said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. So you kind of get the set up there in Jerusalem. The Levites are being assigned to different tasks by David, who is their king, who in a moment we're going to see that even the song leaders reported to David. He was in charge of all the music that went on there in the temple. In fact, turn to 1 Chronicles 25, just a couple of chapters forward. 1 Chronicles 25. And David was specific about using instruments, and he used a wide variety of instruments, which is why, as we're reading through the Psalms, we're going to see many references to instruments. First Chronicles 25, I'm going to read the first seven verses, although I may again skip a few names. Oh, I said I may. Who am I kidding? I'm going to. Chicken. <laughs> we'll let you read them. <laughs> Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres and harps and cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service was of the sons of Asaph, and then he lists the various different sons of these three, Jeduthun and Asaph and Haman, and they all had sons who were 
employed in the service of music in the temple. Verse 5, and these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God. For God gave 14 sons and three daughters to Haman, and all of these were under the direction of their fathers to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbal and harps and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Haman were under the direction of the king. So all of the musicians and all of the singers were under the directions of their fathers, and the fathers collectively were under the direction of the king. And their numbers also, says verse 7, were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives. All who were skillful was 288. That's quite a choir. 288 singers in their courses so that there's always music and singing in the temple. And it was all under the direction of David. And so you can see why David would write a psalm and start it with this superscription. We're now in Psalm 4, which means all of that was indeed introduction. Psalm 4, the superscription is for the choir director. We just read who the choir is. It's all the children of Haman. For the choir director on stringed instruments, because they have psalteries and harps, a psalm of David. If you look at the superscription on on Psalm 5, you'll see for the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. If you look at Psalm 6, it says for the choir director, with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David. And so it's very common for David to not only write the psalm, which is going to be sung or recited in the temple, but then also to provide instruction about what kind of instruments he hears. So even as he's writing these psalms, or perhaps after he's written it, he's thinking about what would the best musical accompaniment be for this particular psalm. And then he's assigning that instruction to the musical leaders there in the temple. What we don't have is any record of what that music sounded like. Mm. I'd love to hear it. It probably seemed very strange to us. It probably would. Mm. It's probably quite Middle Eastern and probably not on the, the same scale that we work on here in the West. And so now we can read this psalm. This is not a long psalm. There are only eight verses in it, but every one of these eight verses is just jam-packed with theological implications. For instance, verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Right away, David admits that whatever righteousness he has, remember last week when we were looking at David's cry to God, he recognized as he was running from his own son, he recognized his own sinfulness. He recognized his own rebellion against God. He recognized that he deserved to be corrected by God. So he could not say, my righteousness. He could not plead to God on the basis of his own righteousness. And so he refers to God by the name, the God of my righteousness. 
The only place you're going to get righteousness, the only place that righteousness exists is in God. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast relieved me from my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. In other words, David's saying, I know what you've done for me before. I know how you've helped me before. I know how you have interceded and intervened for me before. In fact, he was told by Nathan that God had forgiven his sin. Nevertheless, the baby that he had had with Bathsheba was was going to perish. But David's sin was still going to be forgiven by God. David has a history with God where he knows about God's goodness and grace and how he has delivered him in the past. So based on the fact that he knows that God has delivered him and relieved him from his distress, relieved him when he was on the run, cared for him, kept him at peace from his enemies, he knows that history with God. And on that basis, he could say to God, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I know you have in the past. And I'm admitting that you're the God of my righteousness. Whatever righteousness I have as the king of Israel in guiding your people, in upholding your law, which he's going to make reference to in a moment, the the reproach that he gets from the sons of men because he's an honorable man, because he's an upright man. And yet he recognizes that the only righteousness he has comes from God and that God has helped him in the past, and therefore he can say, be gracious to me, be kind to me, and hear my prayer. There's just so much good theology going there. I mean, I would like to just extrapolate for hours on that. I won't, but I mean, I I would like to. Because notice that even the hearing of the prayer, David says is gracious. Be gracious to me and listen to me. How much stuff does God have to do? He's pretty busy. He's keeping the universe running and every aspect of it. And there are so many millions and potentially billions of people crying out to him and praying to him. I'm sure that right now in in Ukraine, there are people who didn't give a great deal of thought to God, who are crying to God right now for daily food, for shelter, for clothing. And he's got all that to listen to, and he's got all that to do. And yet, God would pause in the midst of all that to listen to Tom. And and on what basis can Tom go to God and say, you really should listen to me now. In everything you've got going, and all your responsibilities, you should listen to me now. David says, the man after God's own heart says, Be gracious to me in hearing my prayer. Because it does take the grace of God to lend his ear to you, to pay attention to you, to provide the resource of his own Holy Spirit who will take your faltering prayers and clean them up and make them presentable to God. And God provides that. I mean, the acts of grace on God's part to allow us to even come and speak to him. He is the God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches, and yet he would allow Steve to talk to him? And that's why in the New Testament we're told that the only authority we have to go talk to God is the finished work of Christ, which is why our prayers include in Jesus' name. 
The only reason we can go to God and pray to him is because Jesus made that available to us. It's all grace. It's all kindness on God's part. And here David admits that so early on. I'm I'm just insisting once again that the theology of the Bible is very, very consistent. Whether we're talking about David under the law or whether we're talking about the New Testament authors, when it comes to the subject of prayer, they all see it as an act of grace and kindness on God's part that he would provide a means, a method by which we can come crying, Abba, Father. It's all grace. And then his plea, I'll get past this verse in a minute, But his plea for God's grace in listening to him is based on, you've done it before. You've helped me before. You've relieved me before. Which means that this life that we live here on planet Earth, we have accumulated experiences with God that include the ability to look back on our lives and say, wow, I should have died right then. And I didn't. That was the grace of God. Or we can say, I prayed to God about something that was just essential to me, and he delivered me. He helped me. He raised me up. Or he kept me from my enemies. Or he picked me up from my sickbed. He's been so good to me in the past, I can have confidence that he's going to be good to me in the future. And I can have confidence that he's going to hear me when I pray, because I can remember times when I know he heard me, Because the response was so obvious. So again, I like that David would say, you've relieved me in my distress. That's something you have done for me. And on that basis, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Then his perspective changes in verse 2 to talking to the people that he is surrounded by. The people who can see that he's an honorable, upright man and that he's a man who is trying to keep the law of God, and they reproach him, they mock him, they make fun of him. So verse 2 says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? And how long will you love what is worthless and aim at lying, aim at deception, aim at fooling people, Aim at undermining people for your own benefit. How long is that going to be what you crave? And meanwhile, while you're craving the empty things of this world, here I am pursuing God, and you make fun of me. How long are you going to continue in that? So David is going to answer them. Verse 3. But know this, that the Lord, Yahweh, has set apart the godly man for himself. Well, that's election. That's rock-solid theology right there. And David's apologetic to the God-hating world, to the people who mock him for following after God, his answer is, make fun of me all you want. This isn't my doing. This is God's doing. God has set me apart. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. So David gets no credit in it. It's all God's doing. It's all by God's grace. It's by God's choosing. 
remember the previous psalm that we read, that he referred to Israel as God's chosen people, and that God's faithful commitment to Israel was based on his covenants with them. And so David's theology is, Israel is chosen by God. I am the king of Israel. I'm only the king of Israel because God chose me and put me in this office. And therefore, I'm going to try to serve and follow him as an upright man. And you can mock me and make fun of me. But what you don't understand is, this is God's doing. And you're going to have to answer for that at some point. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to him. That's the answer to verse 1. He said, you've relieved me in the past from my distresses, so be gracious to me here again and hear my prayer. But then he says with confidence to those who are mocking him and making fun of him, the Lord hears when I call to him. And notice that David is not saying, the Lord hears me because I'm an upright, righteous man. He's not saying God hears me because I'm such a holy roller and everything else that you're making fun of me for. That's not the reason God hears me. He hears me because he's gracious, but he's gracious to me because he's chosen me, again, in contrast with the people who are mocking him. He has chosen me, and therefore I can have confidence that he does hear me, but I understand that he is the God of my righteousness, and I understand that it is his grace that he would even hear me, And I understand that I am only upright because he chose me. So David understands that it's nothing but grace, grace, grace all the way down the line. But he uses that to contrast his own life, his own behavior, his own righteousness with these people who mock him and make fun of him for being upright. These people who love what is worthless and their whole aim, their whole point in life is lying and deception. How long are you going to be like that, David says. So verse 4 is an instruction to those people. Tremble. You don't know what you're mocking. You don't know what you're making fun of. You think you're just making fun of me, a reproach of me, the king. But you're reproaching God here. You have no fear of God. You've got to start with a reverential fear of God that will cause you to tremble. Again, God said, to this man will I look, to the one who trembles at my word, to the one who has that kind of reverence for God, an understanding of God, the same God that Jesus would say, don't fear men and what men can do to you. Fear God who can put body and soul in outer darkness and hell forever. That's who you fear. That's who you should be concerned about. So David's first instruction to these mockers is, Tremble. And the next word is and. It sometimes is translated but. I actually prefer to use the contrast there. Tremble, but do not sin. The next word is meditate in the NASB. The Hebrew word very literally is speak. And so it means speak to yourself. Think it through. Meditate in your heart, the Hebrew conception of the heart is that it is 
the deepest inward of all the bodily organs and therefore is the center of not only emotion but thought and consideration. And so David's instruction here is be afraid, stop sinning, and he's just listed what some of their sins are, that all they love is the worthless things of this world and their deception, their misuse of other people. So be afraid, do not sin, talk to yourself, meditate in your heart, consider these things that I am telling you. Some translations, instead of meditate there, will use the word muse, which means to think. Think about these things. Muse on those things. Is it worth pointing out that the opposite of muse is amuse? And we live in a world that is right now completely distracted by its amusements so that they don't have to ever stop and think about the really important things of God. David's instruction is, be afraid of God, reverential fear, stop your sinful ways, talk to yourself in your heart, meditate in your heart upon your bed, and be still. I don't know about you, but that's when I do some of my best thinking, is at the end of the day, when all the troubles of the day are over, and I can just lay there and think about God. Sometimes I lay there and, and I'm embarrassed before God because I know me. Sometimes I lay in my bed and I'm just so very thankful that he would be willing to use somebody as embarrassing as me. Sometimes I lay in bed and all I want to do is just feel the kindness and the grace of God and I can... Thank him for the good bed that I lay in in the good house and I ate food today and I have clothes to wear. Sometimes the thankfulness of that moment is just overflowing. That's what David's getting at here. He says at the end of the day, when you're in your bed and you don't have anything else to think about, think about who you are, think about who God is, Meditate about it in your heart. Really think deeply about it. And be afraid. And then for the second time in this psalm, he uses the word selah. Last week I said to you that this word selah might be a musical indication. It might mean pause the recitation and now we're going to have a music break. It might mean pause the music, and now we're going to have a recitation break. It might be quiet down, there's, there's recitation happening. But the essence of the word, as I said last week, means stop for a moment to ponder what I just said. Some kind of break in the action so that people can think about what I just said. The two places so far where he has said that is, first, you are sons of men who reproach my honor, and how long are you going to love what is worthless and aim at deception? Think about it. Think about who you are and what you're doing. And the second place is the solution to the people he's talking to. Tremble 
Do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Think about it. The be still part, I think, is because if you're busy, if you're active, you're not thinking. You're not really meditating. You're not really musing on the things of God because you're still doing stuff. He says, at the end of the day, get into your bed, be still, be quiet, think about God, think about what I've told you. Think of that. If indeed that thought takes root, here's David's instruction, verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Now, he may be referring to the necessary sacrifices that are spelled out in the law. Those may be those sacrifices of righteousness that God has already prescribed. And so they need, in their act of turning, in their act of changing their behavior, sin not, they would bring sacrifices, sin sacrifices to God. Worship sacrifices to God. That might be what David is referring to. But that phrase, bring the sacrifices of righteousness, might also be what Paul was referring to in the New Testament when he refers to us as bringing our bodies, laying our bodies down as living sacrifices, which he says is our reasonable service. And so David refers to the sacrifices of God that are prescribed by the law. Paul picks up that same concept and says, living a godly life, living a life where you are laying down this body of flesh and sacrificing the things that you want and desire in this lifetime in order to honor God, to praise God, to worship God, is also sacrifice. And you present your body as a living sacrifice instead of a dead sacrifice, You present yourself to God, and that is your reasonable service to God. The NASB says your spiritual service. So, in reaction to coming to the fear of the Lord, getting to know the Lord, meditating in your heart upon your bed and being still before the Lord, if that brings about proper repentance, then you will offer the sacrifices of righteousness. But beyond just the doing of the sacrifices of righteousness, the next half of that is, and trust the Lord. Because God eventually is going to say to Israel, I'm sick of your offerings. I don't want any more blood of bulls and goats. Because their heart was wrong with him. They turned the worship of God and the sacrifices to God into just rote religion. And since they were no longer faithfully doing these things before God, God said, that's just empty gestures. And so David quite rightly says, do your religious stuff. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness that Moses has prescribed in the law. Do that, but also trust in the Lord. Because if you don't have the trust, if you don't have the faith, if you don't have the confidence in God, it doesn't matter how many animals you kill. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices to God you bring if it's just rote religion. Really, 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 really good theology in this psalm. Mm-hmm. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. 
Many are saying, and this is again to those people who are chasing the worthlessness of this world and lying and sinning so that they can get whatever they can get out of this world. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Now, the NASB added the word any. Who will show us good? So they've given up on the idea that there is anything good. In other words, you get what you get. You get what you take. If I have to cheat you to get something for me, well, then fair enough, because nobody's given me anything. All of us as human beings think that the world owes us something by virtue of the fact that we're here. Look, I got born. Somebody owes me. Here David says, way back then, that that was the attitude of people. There are many who were saying, who's going to show us any good? His answer is, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. What's the benefit of that? It is demonstrating true, eternal, genuine good to the sons of men. You can either chase the stuff of this world, you can chase the stuff that you can cheat your way into, you can deceive and lie your way through this world and accumulate all the world's goods, the stuff that David refers to as nothing and worthless, but the only true good, the only genuine good is available to everybody. The true genuine good, according to David here, is that God is the only genuine good. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. That word countenance is literally face. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. That answers the question, where does any genuine good come from? It has to come from the goodness of God. And the goodness of God only comes on any of us if he chooses us, if he chooses to listen to us, if he chooses to provide for us, and the only genuine, lasting, eternal good is the good that comes from God. There is no other good in this world. When God does that, when God lifts up his face, lifts up his countenance upon us, verse 7 says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and their new wine abound. In other words, he's saying, look at me, the one who is being castigated by the evil people of this world. When the evil people of this world have abundance, when all their grain and all their new wine is coming in and they're partying and living it up and feasting and they're enjoying the stuff that this world provides for them, David says, having you, having you in my life, having you lift up your countenance, having you graciously hear my prayer, having you deliver me, having you provide for me, gives me the kind of joy that they only get when they get the stuff of the world. But I get God, (laughs) the one that I revere, the one that I love. That brings David joy. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Anybody here happy that God elected you? Mm-hmm. I mean, this seems like a good deal, right? Yes. Yes. Anybody here happy about the grace of God? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anybody here happy about that whole Christ paid for my sins thing? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, great. Um, sign me up. Loving every bit of that. 
Anybody here kind of excited about the prospect that Christ is going to come back and get us and take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're going to be with him forever? Sounds like a pretty good deal, huh? Yes. Does New Jerusalem do anything for anybody? Mm-hmm. Are you kind of happy about all that? Yes. Okay. okay, there's a whole bunch of people on the planet who are still saying, who's going to give us any good? There's no good. So I'm going to go get what good I can get. I'm going to get all I can out of this life and out of this world. And if I never have the world's riches, I'm still going to be happy because I know that the Lord God, Yahweh, chose me and protected me and provided for me my whole life. Remember, this is the same David who could say things like, I'm old and I have been young, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor the seed begging bread. He had the perspective of life as a not only king of Israel, but a man after God's own heart. And that perspective could lead him to say, I am the same kind of blessed and happy in God that they are when the world goes good for them. I may not have the abundance. Of course, David did have some abundance in his life. And he also had to run for his life. He had a difficult life sometimes. He had a challenging life sometimes, no doubt. And yet he could say that because he knew God, and he knew God chose him, and he knew God heard him, he was happy. The kind of happy that mere human beings have when their grain and their new wine abound, overflowing, when they think they're all rich and they're doing well and their barns are full, then they're happy and content. David says, I got that every day. Verse 8. And in peace... I will both lie down and sleep. He might be saying, at the end of the day, I know that God is with me. And just like the advice that he gave to his mockers, his enemies, where he said, you know, if you stop sinning and if you have a proper fear of the Lord, then you're going to lay down and muse about God when you lay down on your bed and be still. So he could be talking about that kind of sleep and saying, I have that. I have the ability to lay down and sleep. Have you ever had a night where you just weren't able to sleep because your head wouldn't stop? We've all had that. (laughs) Every head in the room was nodding, but the people on the internet couldn't hear the rattling sound. And so, yeah, we've all had those nights where we're just staring at the clock and going, oh, my goodness, it's 2.30. I'm not asleep yet. Because you just can't stop your brain. David is saying, I have such peace because I know God, because God has provided everything I need. I can lay down and I can sleep because you alone, O Yahweh, Dost make me to dwell in safety. Again, interesting perspective, because as we all agreed, David had a pretty rocky life. And he was often at war and in battles and leading rebellious people of Israel and trying to uphold the law and then ultimately running for his life from his son and then restored to his throne. I mean, it was a pretty tumultuous life that he led. And yet he could look back on God and God's provision through his whole life and say, you've made me dwell in safety. 
the reason I'm still alive, the reason I'm still fed, the reason I'm still laying here in my bed at the end of the day is because God did that. God took care of me. Now, I might be spiritualizing a little bit, but I think we can also extend that verse to say that at the end of our lives, in peace, we'll lay down. And our life will end and we'll sleep. Because we have the peace of knowing the God who has provided for us all the days of our lives. Speaking personally, I am sometimes overwhelmed and astounded that the God of ages, the God of holiness, the God of righteousness, took the time to save somebody like me. That overwhelms me. But I find a tremendous amount of peace in it and a great deal of comfort in it. And some nights, by God's good grace, I lay down in my bed and I'm at peace. And I'm thankful to God for that. And I hope at the end of my life, I'll be laying down in peace. Knowing that I'm right around the corner from that great getting up morning which I can't wait for. But I really, really like Psalm 4 because it's just jam-packed with all that theology that we agree with entirely. That's very New Testament, God-sovereign, electing two kinds of people, utterly depraved and elected by God. And God is the God of righteousness. Our righteousness comes from God who provides all our welfare for us so that we can have the kind of joy and peace in this life that the other human beings, the cattle of this world, will never really know. I mean, if, if your whole life is concerned about how much of the stuff of this world you can accumulate, what happens when it's gone? Because it's going to get gone at some point. You're going to die and it's going to be gone. Or is just going to do what everything else in the world does and just run down and fade away. And how are you going to have peace when that happens? I agree with David. Be reverential toward God. Tremble. Tremble at him. Tremble at his word. And then you can lay down in peace at the end of the day. Good psalm, huh? Now, I could have said all that with cymbals and trumpets and harps and lyres. You should just be happy that I didn't. But I do hope you follow the Selah rule and think about that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.